You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 73. Today we are asking the question, does pointing and calling improve reliability of action? Let's get started. everybody. My name's Drew Ray. I'm here with David Proven. We're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University, and this is the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we try to ask an important question about the safety of work or the work of safety, and we have a bit of a look at the evidence surrounding it. So David, what type of work of safety are we looking at today? So Drew, we're looking at a process today called pointing and calling, and we'll explain that in a little while, but just for a bit of context. So In our increasingly automated workplaces, the role of human operators in many control room or or controlling style situations involve the monitoring and monitoring the status of certain processes and making certain responses in relation to information that's presented. So at times this can require just a simple physical response such as pressing a button, touching a screen in, in response to a particular situation. And we all know, or we all uh, have different ideas about what the reliability is of humans performing these types of these types of actions. So while while the physical load for our operators has been minimized over time because of all of the different technologies and touchscreens and buttons and control panels, operators still have to manage an enormous amount of information that's fed to them through through lots of different information systems. So improving the person computer interface we know can contribute to reducing the the amount of the information processing load on the operators. But at the end of the day, the person operating the system will always still be responsible for making critical decisions and carrying out critical local actions. And if the person makes an error in these type of control operations, and if the system is unable to detect and correct this error, then it can have catastrophic consequences. So Drew, therefore, there's a lot of effort. Well, I think, in my opinion, there's a lot of effort in safety science that continues to explore ways to try to reduce this risk of human error. And people can't see on the podcast, Drew, but I'm holding up my my hands in big inverted commas when I use the label human error. Yeah, I think that's one of the more difficult conversations to have in safety. A lot of the stuff we do is about preventing human error. And then a lot of the rhetoric we've started using is saying that, oh, human error doesn't really exist. And I think that's something that makes it really hard to have sort of clear and frank conversations about how much we do rely on humans to get things right. Uh, We've got humans as part of the system, performance of those humans matters, and there are some types of performance that we really don't want. So we've had a big backlash against calling it human error because it's really system error where humans are part of that system. But we still want to have that human part of the system operating as well as we can. And often we want to do that through system features like the design of the interface, but also how we train people to behave. Yeah, absolutely true. And I I refer to it when I think of the role of, of people in these complex systems in that people are incredibly high performance parts of the system. You know, people can deal with a whole range of different information, different novel type of environments. You know, we can, we've got an infinite amount of algorithms in our head, if you like, to make sense of the world around us. But we're not necessarily equipped with machine-like reliability for our for our actions. So this this idea of 100% reliability of human action doesn't exist, and we know that, and and we know that when we talk about making error-tolerant systems. So much of the effort has gone into this interface design between the operator and the information communication technology, or ICT, 
So we've been looking at this for decades and decades and decades through since we've had these different interface and different display units of how how data gets represented, how that stimulus is responded to by by the human operator. But like you said, Drew, it's really important to think about the role that people play because because you know we're people after all, and we've got to process that information and take take action. So Drew, in this in this episode, so we're going to talk about one such operator pro- process, and it's called finger pointing and calling. In in the article we're going to talk to, they talk about FPRC as this idea of pointing and calling. So it's an operational procedure that's uh, implemented in in safety critical industrial settings almost exclusively. I don't know if exclusively is the right word, but as far as I know, sort of almost exclusively in Japanese industry, and it's designed to prevent human error. And I think Drew is referred to as Shiza Kosho or Shiza Kanko in Japanese, which is this point and call. So Drew, you want to tell us a little bit about what so what is pointing and calling? Uh, sure. So David, I think you and I might have run into Shiza Kanko in the same way, which is riding around trains in Japan. And I'd Certainly encourage any of our listeners, if you're in Japan and you're on a train, try to get up the front and look through the glass door window at the operator, the driver at the front, and you can see this in motion, that the driver's going along and each time they see a signal, or even if it's just like a green light, they point a finger directly at it and they say Japanese, the Japanese word for green or the Japanese word for red or the speed limit that they've gone past. So the idea is you're looking out for things that you're supposed to see, whether it's a sign or a meter or a button or a light, things that you need to check or control. You point your index finger directly at that thing and you say aloud what that thing is currently showing. So if it's a speed meter, you point at the speed meter and you say 60 kilometers an hour. Or it's a pressure gauge, you point at the pressure gauge and you say... 30 psi or if it's a red light you point at it and you say red and if you're using it to change a control then you point at the control you say what the control is so brake handle point at the brake handle before you pull the brake handle and yeah we'll talk a little bit about why that's considered to be a good thing but david do you want to tell the story about when you've seen it yeah drew and i think the paper went on to say that you know this this idea of physically checking or pointing or, or touching what you're doing and saying aloud what uh, what the status is or or what you're what you're about to do what you what action you're about to take in relation to the system it's done in healthcare settings in surgery it's done in um, in pre-flight processes in in aviation but it's sort of designed as a two-person checking activity where you say it aloud and the other person you know confirms aloud and and so but in this situation we're talking about just a sole operator as sort of a, a an individual, uh, cognitive process or physical cognitive process that the person goes through. And I'd also seen it drew in uh, in trains. And when you mentioned the idea for this episode, I recalled there's some really good YouTube clips on this. So if you want to, if you're not, well, many of our people, they probably won't be, unless they're an Olympian, they probably won't be traveling to Japan this year. So for any anyone who wants to have a look at what this looks like, you can just YouTube um, point, pointing and calling and, and you'll be able to get some some good little clips of what it looks like. But I thought also, Drew, you could also try this for yourself. Like after you listen to this episode, you could also try this for yourself safely, I suppose. Well, maybe it is more safe. Next time you're in your car, you can sort of drive along and every time you see a see a uh, speed sign, sort of take one hand off the wheel, point at the sign, call out aloud 60 kilometers an hour, point at your gauge 60 kilometers an hour and sort of confirm the action that you've taken or stop sign, brake, red light, brake. And what you're doing is you're, you're pointing at the stimulus that you're responding to and then you're saying aloud, 
what the status of that st- stimulus is. And then you're also saying aloud kind of the action that you're that you're taking. Yeah, that is actually in Queensland at least one of the first recommended lessons when you're teaching your kids to drive. They say you take them out on a drive and point out each of the hazards or get them to drive along calling out each of the hazards that they can see. Not quite the same because last thing you want is someone actually pointing at all of those things while they're learning to drive. And the pointing is actually considered to be a sort of key part of this task. But as you said, David, it's used extensively in Japan. It, As far as I know, it's been around for at least since the early 1950s, but there's very little written about it. Obviously, a lot of what's written about it is in Japanese, but we've got access to the abstracts and we can see that even in Japan, there's not a lot of academic research. All of the stuff that's been written starts out by saying it's well known that finger pointing and calling is effective. And therefore, we're doing this study to explore why it works, which is kind of interesting if you've got something that's been around in Japan for so long that people are so confident it works, but it hasn't spread elsewhere in the world, which, yeah, we might, we might get into that a little bit later in the discussion, because you, if the reason it hasn't spread is lack of evidence, then that it doesn't explain how lots of other safety practices have spread. But it, it does seem to be sort of popular and accepted as a safety thing in Japan. Yeah, absolutely true. And I think you meant the 1950s. There's there's a few papers referenced in the paper that we're just about to introduce, but uh, th- there seemed to be some research done in about the mid 1960s uh, that that sort of, which seems to be the, the most sort of heavily cited initial kind of research around this pointing and calling activity. But then there was also some work done in the in the 90s where participants were required to respond to one of five visual stimuli. And this was uh, performed in random order. So five different uh, stimulus with five different responses presented to participants in random order. And these participants uh, were asked to either carry out this finger point and call. So point, call out which of these five random stimulus it was and then take some action or do nothing and just make the response to the stimulus. And basically this study mid 90s sort of showed that doing the finger pointing and calling significantly reduced the errors of, you know, taking the wrong action in response to those five random stimulus. So I think, Drew, that it's sort of the evidence is sparse, but some of these laboratory type uh, studies, which we're also going to talk about one of these types of studies today, seems to show that the process at least doesn't make things less safe. Yeah, yeah, at the very least, we have quite a plausible theory for why it should work. So you've got a number of different things that are going on. Uh, What I'm doing here is just repeating a claim that's been made in these papers. Uh, So take it with a little grain of salt as a sort of plausible theory rather than something that's been proven. But the idea is that first thing we have is we have confirmed a visual contact with the target. So we're deliberately looking at something. We're then bringing that thing into our memory. The way they refer to it is continuous orientation of attention. The idea is we're not just seeing it, but we're also saying it. And that lock sort of makes it more salient in our mind, easier to be memory remembered. We're doing more than just seeing. So we're using multiple senses. Uh, we're looking, we're speaking, we're presumably hearing ourselves. We're moving our arms. And doing a muscular movement, pointing at things, is a human gesture that really increases the sort of activation of our own mind towards the thing that we're pointing at. So all of these things, sort of steps make it really plausible that we are avoiding that common problem of seeing something without noticing it or seeing it without fully processing it or seeing it and then it immediately slips our mind. 
we're taking a very deliberate act to make sure that it is salient in our memory and that we've looked at it properly. Yeah, Drew, I think this, well, the theory or or the claims in in this research sort of talks about it being a very deliberate action sequence. So we're, we're almost slowing down uh, the cognitive processing that we're doing because we're having to take the time to point and to and to speak and to hear ourselves and then to take action. So almost forces this slowdown and this action sequence that, you know, can, can increase the accuracy, well, as, as the claim is, that accuracy gets promoted because of this deliberate sequence. So, so the previous research on this topic, this area of literature sort of says that most of it concludes that, look, pointing and calling may be useful for improving the reliability in situations that emphasize accuracy over speed. Um, that's sort of generally the, um, the claim made in the literature. Although I think we're going to see some things around speed, which are maybe counterintuitive as well. They also say, Drew, the literature sort of also says that this pointing and calling might also be particularly useful for some habitual behaviors. So like, if you think around the house, which is like, I don't know how, how people do, but you know, sometimes you go keys, wallet, phone, sunglasses, leave the house. And so like, you know, you put your hand on your pocket when you confirm that your keys are there and your, and your hand on your head for your, for your sunglasses. But this idea of things like, have I locked all of the doors in the house? Have I shut all the windows? You know, some of these things that we just do as part of our everyday task, forcing ourselves to point and call out could potentially uh, pick up errors in some of these habitual behaviors. Like if you thought about before you left the house, I'm going to walk around the house and I'm going to point at every door lock and I'm going to point at every window and I'm going to call out whether it's open or closed or locked or unlocked and check it. It's logical to see how that could prevent, you know, an oversight of some kind. So you're saying increased accuracy, lower speed, drastically increased feeling of self-conscious silliness before you leave the house. I guess so. I guess so. So I guess guess it's worth sort of pointing out that this theory says that, I, that the opposite also should be true. So if what's really important is speed rather than accuracy, then we don't want to do finger pointing and calling. So you're obviously, if you're doing something like playing a first person shooter video game where whoever twitches first wins, the last thing you want to do is stop and point out, hey, that's a bad guy before you shoot. And more seriously, if you've got situations where there's a risk of error from operator overload, some of these papers suggest that you're deliberately slowing things down also ends up increasing the workload if there are too many things to point at, too many things to process. So Drew, maybe we'll talk briefly, um, and I don't want to go into too much detail, but we've talked about kind of the logic of the action sequence and the deliberate nature of that. But let's talk really briefly about what might be going on or what uh, the literature suggests might be going on inside our brain uh, in these situations. So there, there's one model of human behavior that's referred to in, in the paper, which I just realized we still haven't introduced yet, but we're, we're almost there. It sort of suggests that our actions are controlled by sort of two uh, sort of cognitive systems, if you like. One's this um, this contention scheduling, uh, attention scheduling system, and one's like this supervisory attentional system. And, and don't worry too much about those, but basically they're saying that this finger pointing gesture has an effect on the perceptual stage of information processing. So it allows us to, like you say, Drew, it allows us to uh, notice what we're seeing. So not just seeing something, but actually perceiving, you know, noticing what it actually means for us. So by pointing the finger, this visual attention gets orientated and focused on this target stimulus. And we uh, are more certain about the um, perception of the information that's being displayed. Um, so this detection of the visual target. So this, but but this pointing gesture also acts as a, as a cue to trigger this this attentional shift towards the information. So at any point in time, Drew, where we're noticing a whole lot of stuff in our environment, even if you think about when you're driving along, you're noticing, you know, that the cars around you, all the different signs, the buildings, the for sale sign on the house, the person walking their dog. But all of a sudden, if you point at a particular 
piece of information within that broad environment, it causes this like attentional shift directly towards that piece of information. So this physical gesture creates this um, really targeted uh, attention to to that information more so than if you didn't actually do the pointing. So David, let's talk a little bit about the paper. I, I should say up front that I, I wanted to do this topic and so I pulled out the most recent and best paper talking about it. This is not the most thorough study. And what I'd like to sort of highlight from that is the opportunity we have here for more research. If you know, I know some of our listeners are at universities or are doing research. This is one of those things where it would be very easy for someone to set up and do the very best study ever on finger pointing and calling without too much effort. Just have a look at this study, know that it got published in a good journal and know that, you know, maybe you could set up something that is a little bit stronger. So the paper is called The Effects of Finger Pointing and Calling on Cognitive Control Processes in the Task Switching Paradigm. It was published in the International Journal of Industrial Ergonomics in 2013. I have to admit, I haven't looked up the authors in detail. Did you, David? No, I didn't. I just looked at where they were from. So the authors are from Osaka University and from the Institute of Nuclear Safety Systems. Kazumitsu Shinohara, Hiroshi Naito, Yuko Matsui, and Masura Hikono. The paper goes in saying that the effectiveness of pointing and calling is widely recognised, and that it's there to prevent human error, but that it's not well understood what the cognitive processes are. And so this paper is setting out to sort of tease apart some of the steps some of the reasons why it's effective. David, are you, you okay if I sort of dive in to describe the method? Yeah, let's go. Let's let's talk about what these what the research did. Okay, so each participant basically has a left button and a right button. And what's going to happen is there are going to be two numbers on the screen in front of them. Each number is just a single digit. And so there are three different ways in which these numbers can be different from each other. One of them is one can be a higher number than the other. The other way is one might be higher on the screen. And the other way is that one of them might be bigger. And so in each variation of this study, there's going to be a rule that tells them which button, which, sorry, which number is the one that they should pick. So maybe the rule this time is click on the higher number. Maybe it's click on the larger number. Maybe it's click on the physically larger number. And the reaction, so the participant first gets shown the rule and then they click ready and then they get shown the two numbers, then they click either left or right. And we're measuring the preparation time, the time before they say they're ready. We're measuring the reaction time, the time to the first click, and we're measuring the accuracy, whether they clicked it correctly. Is that a fair summary, David? Anything I've missed there? No. No, absolutely not. Other than there was four different conditions, if you like, Drew, I'll just briefly mention those. So that's basically what they did. They got given this 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 task rule, if you like. They said when they were ready to go, and then they they clicked their response. And they're either doing uh, a single task, which means they did say thirty consecutive trials just with the same task rule. So pick the number that's higher on the screen. Pick the number that's higher on the screen. Do it thirty times with the same rule or the mixed rule situation where it was sort of like a randomized one of the three. So pick the number that's higher on the screen, and then it might be pick the number that's a larger font size or pick the number that's numerically higher, so like that. And then the two, so they're the two different, uh, two of the different conditions. And then for each of those, they either did it with the finger pointing and calling 
or they did it without the finger pointing and calling. So you've sort of, everyone did the same, went through the exercise sort of in four different conditions. And when we talk about finger pointing and calling, what they were doing this during the rule stage of the task. So the rule would flash up, like pick the largest digit and they would point to that rule and say the rule aloud. That was the point and calling part of it. Perfect, Drew. They also, they also had a, a survey that they did straight after the end of each of the trials, which was 26 questions, a seven-point scale, which was a, a scale that was about what's called a subjective mental workload assessment. So, you know, how hard was the task that they were performing, basically, and covered the areas of mental demand, physical demand, time, pressure, performance, effort, frustration. So they did this survey at the end of each of the trials for the different conditions because the researchers also wanted to understand this claim in the literature about uh, does finger pointing and calling make tasks you know, more mentally demanding or, or higher workload because of the extra activity associated with the task. So the researchers did not state clearly what their hypotheses were. For those of you out there who are doing research, this is a big no-no when you do an experiment. You've got to say in advance what your sort of primary claim is. But I think we can infer from the introduction to the paper and the way they wrote it that their sort of first prediction was that the finger pointing and calling was going to make things more accurate and that it was going to particularly help when we went into this mixed task where the rules kept changing. And then we had this secondary measure of time, which will help us explain why the finger pointing and calling is more accurate. But what they, what in fact they found was that their participants were all very good at the task. So over, was it 20 participants, each doing and 30 at a time and then four sessions of that 30. So a total in the end of 8,000 times they did the task. And only 2.5% of those were incorrect. So a very, very low error rate. And that low error rate didn't really seem to have anything to do with the either the task or the finger pointing and calling. Sorry, sorry, I misspoke there slightly. The error rate was higher in the mixed rule, but it wasn't different between the finger pointing and calling and the not finger pointing and calling. So the mixed rule task was harder, but even with the harder task, the finger pointing didn't really help with the accuracy. Yes, yeah, so just in some of those numbers, like the the single rule was a much lower error rate to the to the multi rule, which which means that if someone's doing something repetitively 30 times and the rule's the same, then you know keeping that in the working memory and, and, and getting the right response seemed, uh, seemed more reliable than when the task kept changing, the rule kept changing every, um, every time a, 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 new, a new task flashed up, which, which sort of makes a little bit of sense. But the error rate was sort of three times higher in that situation, even for a simple task like this, like when you think of going from you know, pick the number that's this or pick the number that's that. Uh, when you keep changing up even what seems like a simple task, you're sort of introducing three times the error rate. So, so our first basic idea that point and call is going to improve the accuracy doesn't appear to be true from this particular study. Um, although remember that it was shown from the previous uh, studies that this study cites. But what they did find was some interesting things with the workload and with the timing, because it certainly wasn't the same that pointing and calling had no effect at all it was obviously changing the way people were going about and thinking about the task. Um, this was most noticeable in the mixed rule situation. Sorry, I'm, I'm misspeaking in, David. I might just get you to take over for a moment. No, that's fine. So so in the in the mixed rule situation, it seemed as though, well, how I interpret between the results. So 
if, if people remember the method, basically a rule flashes up on the screen and the participant had to say when they were ready to be showing the numbers so that they could actually perform the task. So it flashes up on the screen, choose the higher number, and they say, yep, got that, go. And so they either pointed and called out what the rule was and then hit the button and said, I'm ready to go, or they just processed it without the pointing and calling and said, yep, I'm ready to go. And it seems, well, from the results is that with the finger pointing and calling, people were ready quicker. So it was almost like they had uh, reading between the lines or, or my um, in my conclusion from the results, Drew, it was sort of like they had a way to approach the processing of the task. So as soon as that that rule flashed up on the screen, they pointed, they read it out, they said, I'm ready to go and off they went. Whereas when it just flashed up on the screen, they maybe couldn't focus their attention as quickly or they couldn't process the information as quickly without that that pattern of behavior of pointing and calling but it was definitely prep intentional preparation time which they they describe in the paper if people have the time to prepare to be ready to go for a task the pointing and calling seem to speed up that preparation time yeah so with the simple task pointing and calling is helping them be faster at being ready to click on the right thing when it came to the more complex task the people who were pointing and calling were spending longer on that preparation screen, but they were then faster once that screen was gone to get the right result. So it was like it was leading them through the process of loading the rule into their mind, being a little bit slower about loading the rule, but once the rule is there, they're faster to activate the rule when the next screen comes up. Um, whereas the people who didn't have that assistance through the point and call were faster saying that they were ready but then they had to stop and think about what was the right thing to click on. So Drew, anything else in the findings that you thought was interesting? So we're now at the point where we go, okay, we've got this practice of finger pointing and calling used extensively in sort of high risk settings in, in Japan. We've got a bunch of literature, which, you know, some literature talks about accuracy. This study didn't, didn't seem to, didn't find, find an accuracy finding, but found this, uh, this processing speed finding around pointing and calling. Any, anything else in the findings here that you think is worth talking about? So I guess the main big takeaway from this paper is the whole big claim for pointing and calling is that it's a way of reducing human error. This is widely accepted throughout industry in Japan. It's widely practiced. Even regulators accept it and so presumably check up on it. And then we have these studies that are really fairly mixed and the most recent, most rigorously conducted study just shows no difference in accuracy. And probably shouldn't surprise listeners to the podcast that the authors come away concluding that the study provides evidence that finger point and calling is effective and therefore should be encouraged to be introduced to real world working situations as a tool to prevent operational errors. And absolutely the research does not show that. What it does show though is that there is definitely a cognitive difference in people doing finger pointing and calling to people who aren't. It's not a practice that has zero effect. It's just not proven to be a useful effect. So that's the type of the result that definitely should get you thinking, hey, there's something going on here. Maybe it's helpful. Maybe there are different situations where it isn't isn't helpful. Certainly this is worth doing some more experiments to find out. Is it generally helpful and what sort of tasks does it help with? Yeah, I think so, Drew. It's left me a little bit fascinated because I must admit, I, I from before I'd read this paper, I thought, oh, when you look at the, I don't even know how to describe the, the information that is generally available outside of the academic literature around finger pointing and calling seems to sort of talk about that it is the single biggest cause of the, you know, the high reliability of the fast rail uh, industry in, in Japan. It sort of all boils down to this one practice of finger pointing and calling for not crashing trains. 
and then when you sort of dive into literature, it's obviously not that not that compelling, but there is definitely something going on in these laboratory settings. So many of the things that we talk about sometime in the podcast, there really isn't, isn't maybe there's nothing going on at all. But but here something is, and I think it would be easy to not easy, it would be possible that the tasks in the laboratory, like just a simple rule on a screen and pressing a left and right button is such a simplistic action and stimulus that the accuracy is is always going to be highly accurate anyway um, once you put humans in into that sort of a task so I, i'd love to see uh, a, a study in, in a real world environment with some more complex stimulus and some more complex human behaviors like you know driving a train or flying a plane or controlling a hazardous sort of system and actually just trying to actually understand if it works because i think there's something really going on here yeah, I don't know about complex real-world environments, David. I'm thinking that, you know, if you're a PhD student looking to do a little bit of experimental research and safety, there are lots of practices that we really pro- have got no good reason to suspect that they would work at all. Here we have something where I think, you know, a good experiment might actually find something. So why don't, you know, fire up a copy of Microsoft Train Simulator, you know, set a few signals to red, get someone to sit in front of a train simulator screen and count error rates and see how it works. I don't know about train simulators or maybe maybe Grand Theft Auto or something like that. But look, I think I think a, a gaming environment and um, could be kind of interesting. So there you go. I happily supervise um, supervise that study, and I know Drew would too. Any excuse to play more video games, Drew? Absolutely. Uh, so some practical takeaways. Yeah. Look, I think practical takeaways. So look, if in your workplace you've got a situations where an operator has to check information on a visual display unit, then they have to memorize that content. And then they have to perform one of a range of different acts, uh, actions in response to what's displayed on that on that display. Then pointing and calling may change the the accuracy or the speed at which that they actually process that stimulus and make that action. Like we've said, we we can't be probably more con- uh, conclusive than that, but it would be an interesting thing to uh, to to explore within your workplace. And um, the second one that I think is worth thinking of is pointing and calling as an individual mindfulness exercise. We've got lots of things that we ask employees to do that are supposed to get them to recognize hazards in the moment. And the worst example I'm thinking of is someone who sits down and fills out a risk assessment card just before swinging a ladder into a power line. And my immediate thought for that accident was, what if instead of having to fill out the card, they just had to look up and point up, look down and point down? look in all four compass directions for hazards and point at the hazards, maybe that would have been more effective. And so, yeah, if you're dismissing this as a practice that, oh, it just seems silly to make workers do this, then think about the other things that we make workers do that they probably think are just as silly and ask yourself why something that has been widely adopted in a country that has a very good safety reputation hasn't spread. What is our reluctance and how do we choose our safety practices? Yeah, maybe we just don't want to look silly Maybe, maybe true as part of work, but I, I, I think that's a fantastic practical takeaway. I think that that possible idea that having a group of people stand around at a work site and write a, a risk assessment form or complete a risk assessment form versus having a group of people stand around at a, at a work site and point and call out hazards may create a very different uh, attention and and management of those those worksite hazards. So there's another potential uh, research project for someone as well. Yeah, if the, if the problem is just looking silly, David, I just want to remind you that our last episode was about high-vis and included discussion about the importance of wearing pink or possibly watermelon. Yeah, absolutely right, Drew. So so we're now wearing pink high-vis shirts and um, walking around sites. And look, 
the very act of pointing and calling, waving your hands around is also going to make you more visible, visible as well. It's going to make sure people know that you're human because you're moving your arms around. So not only will you maybe uh, process the information that you're doing by pointing and calling better, you might also avoid getting hit by a car in the process. Uh, so David, just before we wrap up, I do want to acknowledge from the last episode that we had this whole episode about high vis and we never once, I think, mentioned color blindness. And we've had a bit of listener feedback saying that yeah, that is actually an important consideration, not just contrast, but contrast that still works for people who are colorblind. Um, so I think that's something we're going to need to have a look at and maybe cover in a future episode. I just wanted to acknowledge now from the feedback that that is something important that we actually missed from the episode. Yeah, good point, Drew. I, I hadn't um, absolutely hadn't considered that. Um, and I suppose, yeah, the, the, the diversity of individual needs in our workplaces is is something that um, obviously factors should should factor into our safety considerations. Um, absolutely. So apologies um, to those to those listeners for missing that that aspect but thanks for the feedback uh, so invitation to listeners do we have any japanese listeners do you know from the podcast stats david oh i'm sure we do i think we've got downloads i know we've got downloads in in more than 100 countries now drew so i'm expecting japan to be on that list okay so this is not a wide invitation but i'd really love to hear from any of our listeners who have direct experience with point and call uh, who might be a bit more familiar maybe with the evidence for and against and able to read those japanese papers other than just the abstracts like we had access to. Great, Drew. So the question that we asked today in this episode was, does pointing and calling improve the reliability of action? And Drew, do you want to have a go at an answer to that? Uh, so specifically for the paper we reviewed this week, no, it did not. But yeah, balance, balance of evidence, there is something going on there that we need to look into further. Great. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Please join us in the discussion on LinkedIn, drop us an idea for a future episode into the portal or send any comments, questions or, uh, or just any general feedback to us directly at feedback at safetyofwork.com. <laughs>